The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Al Tabor about the founding of Mountain Hardware, the early Bay Area outdoor companies, and his part in helping start the Outdoor Recreation Archive at Utah State. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is is Al Tabor, um, a great partner of, of our program of, of the Outdoor Recreation Archive um, here at the university. Um, gear historian, um, you know, early member of, of Mountain Hardware, uh, Sierra Designs, now a board member at Slingfin, um, just all around, you know, you've, you've done so much to, to help preserve the history of, of this industry and such an integral part of it. Thanks for joining me to talk a little bit today. Well, thank you. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's really, it's important that, that we have you on um, because you were one of the catalysts. Well, you were the catalyst to help get our uh, outdoor recreation archive really off the ground. Um, right. You know, we, we had, you know, talked about how, you know, it would be really great if we could preserve um, these primary sources, these documents from, from our industry. Um, how do we do that? How do we go about finding these materials? And I mean, through your efforts and your network, um, we, you know, the collection really got kickstarted, you know, with over, you know, a thousand catalogs, 1200, 1300 catalogs, um, really being the foundation of our efforts to preserve the history of the industry. And, and from that, it's grown to over 2,500 print materials, um, from over 200 brands. Um, and then we've started doing this oral history project kind of as mm-hmm. a part of it, um, to really complement the materials that are in the archive, to be able to put a voice to those materials has, has been really important. So it's about time that we got you on to talk a little bit about your place in, in all of this. So thanks again. Sure. Happy to be here. So, well, um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, do you, do you mind sharing a little bit about, we're going to go back a few years, but do you mind sharing a little bit about, I guess, your introduction to the, the outdoors? Do you mind sharing some of your background? Um, so my dad loved the outdoors uh, and um, spent summers, the Black Hills of South Dakota aren't hills, they're actually mountains. And he would spend summers at a favorite aunt and uncle's at a cabin in a, in a steep canyon in the Black Hills. So we would go out there most years for family vacation, alternating occasionally to the Tetons. Um, he loved camping. Um, my mother, not so much, but got drugged along on all this. And at one point, he became uh, the Boy Scout leader. We had sort of the anarchist Boy Scout troop. So it was family, Boy Scouts. Um, we were the troop that had all different color neckerchiefs. Uh, so just to, uh, uh, so we're kind of troublemakers. Um, and so I had this love of the outdoors. Uh, I would spend time out stomping around as often as I could. Did a lot of backpacking with, honest to God, you know, a sleeping bag with felt uh, and pheasants on the, the liner, a cloth sleeping bag. Um, if I had to factor in the amount of time I spent backpacking with really crappy gear and the amount of time now I've got wonderful gear, you know, I wish I could kind of reverse what showed up when. Um, one of the things we did in the Boy Scouts is we were reading Kelty uh, catalogs and we got aluminum conduit and a pipe bender and made ourselves frame packs and attached our cloth uh, uh, Boy Scout packs to those. So, you know, I've been had my eye on gear all along and I ended up in the outdoor industry because I ran out of money in Oakland in 1976 and stumbled into a job. A friend was working for Sierra Designs, throwing boxes around in the warehouse. Uh, he wanted to go home for Christmas, 
you know, um, he said, I got a friend that needs a job. They said, I don't know if he's capable of throwing boxes around in a warehouse right before Christmas. So I had a job interview. I proved to actually be qualified because I had spent years throwing boxes around in the basement of my dad's drugstore. You know, so I actually had job qualifications and he never returned and I had a job. So uh, this is in 76. So I became interested in computers uh, as they appeared. Started doing um, inventory tracking type stuff on the computer. Uh, it's a long story, so I'll give you the punchline. I actually kind of won my uh, career in the outdoor in, as an IT professional by having a high score on a really early computer game. Uh, I would be sitting playing this game as everybody left, so they figured they didn't know there could be computer games. So they figured that I was kind of an expert. At one point, I inherited a department, uh, and now I'm a computer guy. Um, and I kind of grew up with both, uh, you know, 60s to 70s backpacking business and also the Bay Area, you know, Osborne, Capro, Apple IIe, you know, early programming environment. Um, so ultimately, my job was modeling computer systems, information systems, that, that sort of thing. As uh, eight of us started Mountain Hardware. All the computer stuff was my stuff, accounting systems, forecasting systems, and it went from there. So that's both me and the outdoor industry and me and the outdoors. Yeah. So, so you started to work for Sierra Designs. So that was in the 70s, late 70s? December 1976. 76. Okay. What, what was kind of the state of the industry at that time? I, I mean, I think for a lot of people around that time... I think more so now people see like a career in it. Like you can stay right. in the industry and work in the career for a long time. Did you envision that as, okay, this is a career move. Like I'm, I'm working oh, in the outdoor not. industry, but what was the state of things at that time? Um, a little bit of wild, wild west. I mean, you know, this is a uh, North face, uh, Sierra designs. Uh, it's basically Berkeley hippies, you know, uh, uh, although somebody once told me I couldn't be a hippie because I had a job. Uh, but it, it was, you know, uh, kind of a motley collection. You know, there were some business people, but more typically was uh, somebody that, some long hair, they just loved the outdoors. Um, the head of design and sourcing at uh, Mountain Hardware began because he could work retail three days a week and spend four days a week in Yosemite. Mm. And so yeah. he just, you know, from becoming the guy that bought the product, sold the product to the guy that bought the product to the guy that designed the product. Yeah. It was kind of a natural progression and it was by and large based on people's love of the outdoors and not really a calculated career. Uh, a lot of accidental careers. Hal Klopp is probably one of the few people that kind of had a, a business vision for it. Well, for a lot of people, it seemed like this was a way to fund the hobby, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. And you got to play with the gear, gear. you got you to play with it, and then you got paid, and then you could go spend it all, you know, go yeah, on, going you, out and playing. Yeah, you get playing. the uh, pro-use discount, right? You know, right. everybody, if you're working somewhere, you could get stuff 40% off. Right, sure. Well, th we could probably have a whole separate episode about this, and I think we talked a little bit about maybe doing this. And uh, Bruce Johnson and I recently talked about the, the different hubs around mm -hmm. the country and you were you were in one of these hubs right california as yeah. as one of the right. hubs of where the industry really took hold um i guess for you where do you trace some of that back to what you know what what do you trace a lot of that to is it was it one company that you feel like oh really took off and that spawned others like where did some of that come from well it has to like? start with um george rudolph at the ski hut mm -hmm. and he foots back to the the 10th mountain division um, so coming out of World War II, which is something I learned simply because I started putting together this website, um, a lot of the sort of founding uh, folks were, came out of the military, uh, out of World War II, uh, in a, uh, the Mountain Division, which was, you know, in fact, I, I, I have, uh, my notes only have thank Gordon Wing for the catalogs and tell two stories about uh, George Rudolph. So, um, and then we can wrap after that, right? We're done. Yeah, that's right? a wrap. <laughs> but um, so Phil Scott, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, worked, you know, was a climbing buddy of Al Steck's, uh, worked with George Rudolph uh, at Trailwise. 
and told me, so George Rudolph came back from the war. They actually had a business before the war that would take people up to the Tahoe skiing on the train. So they go up in the morning, come back in the, in the evening. Uh, they took a hiatus during the war. And while he was in uh, the military, um, he and his buddies in the Mountain Corps would actually sneak into Italy uh, about 10 kilometers to the small village to get Pavetta boots, which were being, you know, were the local craft. And they were so much better than the standard issue that they would go behind enemy lines and, and get the boots. So immediately after the war, it occurred to him he could import those boots. So he came, became sort of the sole buyer for these high-quality mountaineering boots uh, and would import them into the United States. Uh, when he would visit the village, it would be George Rudolph Day because he was essentially employing, you know, over half the village, the um, ski touring, but also the retail store. Trailwise was the manufacturing. Donner Mountain Corps was the uh, importer. And the reason it's called Donner Mountain Corps is because the Donner Party had to eat their boots mm. uh, before they resorted to eating each other. So it was, you know, some dark humor from, you know, which I think is kind of typical of uh, the mentality that it seems so on brand are, for, for, you know, the early people in the outdoor industry. Yeah. So that, and those are both stories that I only know because Phil Scott, I tricked Phil Scott into letting me record them. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't like to be on camera, but he's got, he's a wonderful font of industry information. So when I, I guess just kind of being embedded in the hotspot, right? I mean, we're, we're skipping a few years here. Um, right between between ski hut and and really you coming to to that region right was being embedded in in that area did that influence your passion your interest in in the history of the industry um well okay so yes and no and here's how the website came along well okay first one short connector so the founders of the North Face, founders of Sierra Designs, all these folks worked for George Rudolph before they went off to start those other businesses. Yeah. So it's not just he was there first. He was, you know, the, it's a lineage, mm -hmm. uh, uh, not just a co-location. So my fascination is with stories. Um, why you remember a particular story, why you tell a particular story how the stories you tell define you as a human being, how the stories we tell define us as a people, how the stories um, we might tell as an industry define us as an industry that is, contains both the information but also the shared experience. And if uh, it occurred to me, okay, well, we've got Twitter, Facebook. You know, Twitter's kind of like, you know, a nod, 140 characters. Facebook's showing so some, many pictures of your kids or whatever when you meet on the street. Mm -hmm which are both legitimate forms of co uh, conversation. But if we're going to have a deep conversation, either because we're old friends and we reconnect or we bump into each other and hit it off, we end up trading stories. Um, you know, it communicates our experience. It looks for shared experience, um, a whole variety of things. So it occurred to me, well, can I build a social media based around stories? And, well, I knew a lot of people that had been telling stories on each other for decades, all, all the folks in the outdoor industry. Uh, a lot of them are sales reps or people like Bob Woodward, we were talking about, um, that are great storytellers. Uh, George Marks, uh, um, the founder, one of the two founders of Sierra Designs, three founders, uh, is kind of a natural raconteur. You know, it's, it's, uh, so I thought, well, all i got to do is grab these guys and start them telling stories. And my idea was, okay, I got my story of the outdoor industry, the way we started. You have said, what's your story? How'd you get into it? Well, pretty much everybody, uh, you know, Mountain Hardware was the sum total of all those stories. Everybody's first day, everybody's career, everybody's involvement, um, and particularly in an industry in which people are emotionally involved in what they do. You know, they're not waiting for five o'clock. Uh, well, they are waiting for five o'clock because they could go outdoors. Right, or they showed up late because they went surfing. So um, uh, it kind of captures the emotion. And so my initial mission was, I'm just going to get everybody's first day from Mountain Hardware. Um, and the way I did it is I got together the founders uh, of Mountain Hardware, and we interviewed each other. So, and that's a 
great story. You know, we were trying to buy Sierra Designs uh, out of bankruptcy court, the North Face Marmot, Sierra Designs. We're all owned by this company called Odyssey that exploded into bankruptcy in Hong Kong. Uh, and if that happens, then there are warrants out for your, the arrests of, you know, so uh, people who escaped Hong Kong that one jump ahead of the law, uh, not our people, but um, so we were trying to buy ourselves from the guys that sort of owned the North Face during sort of it, perhaps it's the darkest uh, section of its history. And they didn't want to sell us to ourselves because we would be com competition for what they wanted to do at the North Face. So we made an offer. They ignored us. We made an offer. They ignored us. Well, our fearless leader is this guy, Jack Gilbert, who must be on your list of people to talk to. He's six foot, I don't know, six, whatever. It's Halloween. He's got a Stetson hat on, you know, a big belt, cowboy, right? And we've been conspiring in the Mexican restaurant across the street. They had an upstairs banquet room, and we go over there and say, okay, how are we going to get Sierra Designs? And realized we aren't going to get it. But our financial guy, uh, Ian Cummings, uh, said, well, why don't you just start your own? And we said, we could do that. Uh, so Jack walks in and says, well, you know, I'd like to discuss this. You know, here's, here's an offer. We, you know, we've been making offers. They said, eh, you know, which they always say, you know, you know we got to do blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, I quit. And gave him an envelope. Uh, Paul Kramer, who was the head of design sourcing, was in Hong Kong designing the Sierra Designs line. So he gave him an envelope um, uh, and they opened it and Paul had quit. And they said, well, is there going to be anybody else? And they said, well, you might want to go over there and see. So, uh, you know, six more of us quit. Uh, on Halloween, you know, uh, in a blaze of glory. Uh, five hours later, I'm sitting in the bar of this Mexican restaurant, looking out the window while they're changing the locks. Uh, my former place of employment, that uh, was a Friday. Uh, Monday morning, we drove to Office Depot and bought cafeteria tables and staplers, and we were in competition with our former self. So a great story, right? And everybody had their own take on how they felt about it, you know, were you freaked out because you're about to quit your job and launch yourself into the unknown? Uh, so I had everybody talk to each other. And then I set about trying to get everybody's first day story. People had started in week two, people had started in year five. Um, I just, you know, what I discovered is it's not easy to create a social media based around stories, but I got a lot of great stories. So at one point I just kind of embraced it and said, well, I'm extruding an oral history of the outdoor industry. George Marks reads this thing and starts sending me material. Uh, I noticed Bob Woodward's thing isn't really published anywhere, so I approached Bob about it. Um, one of the great joys of this is people come out of the woodwork and say, hey, I read a story about my mom that used to sew, uh, you know, at, uh, at Mountain or at, at Sierra Designs. And, you know, that story where they talk about her daughter, that's me. So, or do you know where George Marks is now? Can I get his email address? So it's but, you know, so I still sort of ride on the connective tissue, but um, Bruce Johnson is the historian. I'm just a guy that accidentally built a site with a lot of oral history on it. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd have to challenge that too. I mean, you're, I've, I see you both as historians, but um, may, maybe we can go back a little bit um, and dive more into the founding of, of Mountain Hardware. Um, and and what, what, what were some of your thoughts, you know, going into that and, and starting a company? Well, um, I, I was not one of the people that had any sort of misgivings. Um, I knew Jack Gilbert. I knew Paul Kramer. Uh, there was just no choice as far as I was concerned. These, uh, and, you know, I've worked for a variety of people. Jack Gilbert is like the master of Zen management. You know, he hires the right people, tries to get out of the way. He provides a clear vision, uh, not a lot of babysitting. Uh, so we had a, yeah, and we had a working relationship with each other already. So do I trust these people or do I trust this dubious, you know, other group of people that seem to be now controlling the process is just no doubt um, which way to go. Um, what, what, and, year, what year was this? Oh, where are we? Uh, 93? 93. Maybe 93. So it'd be Halloween in 93. I may be off a year. It could be 92. You know, as you get old, it all, it's all the past, right? But uh, what, what was that experience like for you building, 
building a company and uh, I, I know and your role within that, can you share a little bit more? You've alluded to it before, but what, what was your part in all of all, you know, the founding of mountain hardware? Well, okay. So to start out, there were six of us and then shortly thereafter there were eight. So you get a sixth of the pie. Mm-hmm. So Roberta, for example, was customer service and human resources. I was computers, which meant computers or anything that happened on computers. Accounting system happens on computers. Financial modeling happens on computers. Fixing the printer happens on computers. Um, So the my job. So you know, the first thing I did is figured out how to do barcode labels with a three hundred dollar printer and hook up an old bulletin board system. to get us all email, you know, because we had limited capital. So it was totally about appropriate technology. Uh, and what I discovered is a wonderful tech is a wonderful job because you have to relearn it every three years. So you got to keep you got to keep growing. It's like it's shark, you know, you swim or you drown. Uh, so, um, which may sound a little scary, but it 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 wasn't. It was continually stimulating. And over time, my uh, what I myself did narrowed to primarily supply chain stuff, a lot of figuring out, because it's a capital intensive business and there's a lot of business that hits around Christmas. So about once a year, we'd have to bet our entire existence on the right buy. And I was the guy that put together the information and the team and the intersection between all those pieces to figure out what we should buy uh, and then work with the sourcing folks to take the money we had and do it in a rational manner. So eventually I became a demand planner, but you know, I continued in this uh, backdrop. So I was information systems uh, uh, and we were all directors of something. So I'm director of information systems and I've got nobody working for me. So it kind of, and I was also um, operations, which is the warehouse, you know, so it's like, okay, get to work, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, nobody to boss around. And we had a, uh, Working relationships, we also had an ethic of you don't blame people, you fix it going forward. Um, so I've been places that, you know, you've got a 20% cover your ass uh, overhead where everybody spends half their time proving their innocence. So at their eventual trial, you know, they can drag this out of the file cabinet, which is ridiculous. One of our uh, rituals is when you got hired, you had to build a desk, you had to find materials figure out where you were going to be and construct your, construct your desk. It sort of just kick things off on the, on the right foot. The downside is if you needed support and didn't know how to ask for it, we were going to discover that when your body started to smell, right? I mean, there's no, there was like zero babysitting. So it was a wonderful place to work. Uh, yeah. you know. What, what was, I, I guess maybe, can you share a little bit of the trajectory of the company over the next few years and maybe some of the milestones and, Highs and lows and yeah, um, there weren't a lot of lows. Um, The you know we had so we had sort of a line design. The first thing we did is just try to get some local contractors building bags and some fleece pieces, so we could get a little bit of cash flow going. So we had sort of a crippled line for the first fall, spring. um, We had a lot tents and bags. If you have the tent designs pretty roughed out bags are not as challenging. Uh, so the first big uh, objective was to get some of that set and then get a clothing line going. One of the lows was when our first uh, big shipment of uh, high dollar uh, Gore-Tex came in all the uh, hood um, hardware, you know, strap clip, whatever was broken. It just would pull out. So everybody in the, you know, the CEO, everybody was had these coats spread out over their desk that they were testing, and if they could do a repair, great. Otherwise, it was going into a pile for somebody else to repair. So that was like the most expensive piece in our uh, <laughs> in the biggest chunk of cash in our first fall presentation. Um, you know, another low was duking it out with Mont Bell over what we thought was intellectual property we owned, and he thought was intellectual property he owned. Uh, Everybody uh, complimented us on picking the worst lawyer possible, which might have determined the outcome. Um, but 
you know, we, we grew steadily. Uh, we got our foot in the door because everybody knew Jack and Paul and then managed to deliver the good stuff. Um, and, and we defined ourselves explicitly as we wanted to be, you know, authentic, top quality Berkeley backpacking business, you know, the last honest backpacking business in Ber- Berkeley. And, and at one point we forced Jack to uh, let us create a mission, mission statement, which I still remember because it's so simple. It's make the best stuff, be the easiest company to work with, make some money and have fun. You could always tell if you were doing that, you know, unlike some more big, you know, am I, am I having fun at the very least? And, you know, is it contributing to some of these uh, other objectives? So it was a loose structure, but a pretty clean vision. And um, the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, and we just, you know, it was an upward trajectory from there on in. I think the, I love those, uh, those, the, the the mission of the company, right? Those objectives, uh, like you're right, those are a lot easier to measure than than most company slogans or objectives or mission statements. Yeah, and none that. of us were there to be miserable. I mean, you know, right. if we're not doing it in a way that uh, that uh, is that we find enjoyable, we need to change what we're doing. So that was a serious component. Right. It's it seems like and that at that point in time too, the '90s was probably an interesting time for the outdoor industry. Um, I mean, just a lot of change, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even more, you know, after that, I've just, you know, from a technological standpoint, from, I feel like, I mean, brands being acquired, you know, mm-hmm. just, I mean, the origin right. of the company being kind of failed corporate consolidation. Right. Um, what, what was kind of the lay of the land during that time, kind of the, the 90s era of the outdoors and, and you guys coming up in that? And did that provide an opportunity f- to, you know, for Mountain Hardware to succeed? You know, yeah, I mean, it's not the friendliest way to look at it because we're sort of an industry that uh, prides ourselves on competing during the day, but being able to hang out together in the bars at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but the metaphor for me was, uh, and I'm not sure it's true, but uh, what I've heard is that the way a, a python kills something is every time it exhales, it just takes in the slack until it, you know, can't, can't breathe. Well, you know, we weren't out there rooting for anybody to stumble, but we, you know, you got to deliver the high quality stuff. And then whenever you see an opportunity, be ready to, to move. Uh, somebody leaves a quarter on the table, you take the quarter. So, you know, there's definitely a business thing going on. Um, uh, and I think, you know, having a lot of small and medium players is, is great for the business because there's a lot of innovation there and people are challenging each other, you know, uh, to do a better sleeping bag, do a better tent. Um, and it's not like people from all over are rushing to create a tent company or bag company. You know, it's not people that are just looking for dollars aren't aren't showing up. Um, it's people that are want to have a better sleeping bag and uh, want to spend as much time outdoors as possible and figure out a way to keep body and soul together while they're doing it. So, right. What, so how long were you with the company? Uh, I was with, so we started in say 93, 20 years later, we sold to Columbia. Uh, I was there probably another almost a decade. Uh, not quite, you know, I think I retired in like 2008. Right. I phased out. I went from five days to four days to three days to gone. Right. And, and during that time, so when, when did you start to create this, the out and under, you know, your, your project to document the history of, of the founding that was a of the company? Post-retirement, so that was kind of a retirement okay. project. Yeah. Um, you know, I went through a, mentally a bunch of options. I actually, being a computer guy, I kind of reverse engineered my life uh, to think about what I enjoyed and why, and then how could I do things um, that met those criteria that had provided satisfaction earlier. And quite frankly, you know, I love loved working at uh, Mountain Hardware, but even things I love doing, I don't love doing 50 hours a week. You know, so retirement is basically getting let off the leash, but no downside. Right. And, and so did that, and you kind of channeled some of that, not obviously not your, your whole life, but 
you know, channeled a lot of that energy into this effort to, you know, help preserve, document, tell stories about the outdoor industry. Yeah. And it was a natural because I had to learn a whole new set of technologies, which is what I've been doing my entire career. I love stories. I love the people. Um, it built under its own momentum. So, um, yeah. So, and ultimately what I found out works the best, um, and it might work for your podcast, is the main hurdle I hit um, trying to get people to record their stories is not everybody's a great storyteller just sitting in a room by themselves. There's your Bob Woodwards that can sit there and type up a good story. Uh, what works better is if you and I are talking. You can see if I don't understand, I can see your response. Works great. We take turns. If I stick a mic in your face, chances are you're now editing yep. your thing. So most people. So I would say, oh, that's a great story. Tell that story again. And they're like, um, our, so now we got a double tick. Yeah. Oh, I, if that works, if I'm interviewing you, because I can edit that out a little bit. And video is even worse, right? You know, because you start cutting out the verbal ticks. People are jumping from spot to spot. You need a B-roll. Um, so my vision for moving this natural dynamic of storytelling online, pass one, failed. Uh, pass two it, is, works better. But it, 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 so what ultimately works the best is if I get three people that work together or shared some component of the outdoor industry together, uh, hopefully all are commenting on an event or how they became involved to start with and said, okay, tell the story. Then and just stick a mic in the middle. They forget that there's a mic in the middle. And right. Yeah, it just becomes they, much more of a conversation. It becomes a conversation, and I can edit it up uh, into chunks. Uh, I get everything transcribed so that search engines can find it and uh, put it on the website. And so I think what it would take uh, to have that sort of story website going is it's like there's the great aunt in every family that. Keep knows where everybody is. So if you have a reunion, they can find each other and keeps people. You need a facilitator. Um, so every, you know, I still think the vision is good, but the path to get there um, is much more co uh, complex than I originally assumed. Right. How do you feel like the industry does it at preserving its own history and telling its story? If, um, okay. So, uh, Patagonia's got a lot of history and they've got a historian. There's been no disruption in the continuity of ownership at Patagonia. Mm -hmm. The, anybody that, you know, I collect, I can't save all the catalogs at, uh, at Mountain Hardware. I had a room, I had everything slotted up. Um, cause I valued our history. Well, somebody new comes in and they don't, they're, you know, the history is a different thing. It's something they bought. You know, they bought a brand. Does this help, help me make money? Does it help the brand? Uh, so a lot of it kind of sucks, uh, frankly. Uh, you know, the catalogs I got were because a guy, Gordon Wing, at, who worked at uh, retail at Marmot in Berkeley, saved catalogs. Saved, I don't know how many boxes we sent you. 25? Uh, uh, a lot. Yeah. Right? And I had some catalogs online, so he contacted me. And said, do you want these catalogs? And I said, uh, I guess, yeah. Uh, and I had a partner, this guy named Dan Grassetti, that was, a, as a high school kid, had worked at Trailwise, who was trying to chase down old, Holly, old you know, old Trailwise catalogs. So um, he was kind of my partner in this. So he helped me get them. And then we were sitting there looking at all these catalogs, and we said, these really belong, you know, in the public in a public institution, they belong in a library or, and so we immediately thought of you all, uh, cause we knew you had the program. Um, and that sort of kicked it off. Um, uh, so I think the history has only been preserved accidentally right. by everybody. It's accidentally in my case, by everybody with Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce right. has done it with intention for Bruce. I mean, Bruce since, is uh, the guy with the intention. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and all, I think all, that's, all and I think it, it, and I think it takes all of us, right? It takes people like you who are vigilant and like trying to, you know, seize the opportunities. Oh, there's these, you know, these catalogs, like let's refer them or, or put these catalogs in a place where they're, they'll be preserved. Like, you know, the university is an essential part of this. Like we need universities, public right. institutions that can preserve and make sure that these things are available. They're not going to be 
you know, behind a, a locked door where no one can appreciate them. Um, you need Bruce, Bruce Johnson's who, you know, come at it from that historian approach um, and, and are out there telling the stories. You need people like Dr. Rachel Gross, right? Who right. comes from the academic perspective and can look at our industry within the larger context. And right. then you need the brands, right? Who have bought in and, and like feel passionate about preserving their own history. Um, so it's, it seems like you kind of need, um, you need a few different people and, and companies to buy into this idea and, and they all support each other in a way. Right. Yeah, exactly. So let I, I want to, um, you know, kind of go back a little bit. Um, you know, like I said, you, I mean, you, um, you know, really bringing these catalogs to us kicked off this whole history initiative. Uh, do you, and you kind of outlined kind of how that all came about. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize that, that piece. I mean, to be able to send us, I don't remember how many box it, it, boxes it was either, but, you know, 1,200 or 1,300 catalogs to give this collection a foundation. I mean, I don't know how else we would have done it. Um, you know, because outside of that, in, if you have one or two catalogs, that's not a collection, right? Right. But, you know, and, and you know, people will look at a catalog and, and say, oh, that's cool. But if you look at an entire collection of Chenard catalogs next to each other. Right. Right. Or Sierra Designs catalogs all in a row. For some reason, the quantity makes it more impactful to the eye. Right. Like it just seems like, oh, this is a collection. It gives yeah, it more and legitimacy. And so absolutely, um, that was really significant to be able to have, I mean, what, you know, when you talk a hundred, a couple hundred, yeah, that's cool. But you could say we've got a thousand. Right. For some reason in people's minds, that's like, wow, that's, that's a substantial collection. Um, so I just wanted to emphasize that again, like how significant that was and appreciate you being on the, on the lookout for us. Yeah. And the, you know, the outdoor industry certainly is embedded in a culture. So you can see the sort of artsy catalogs from the sixties. You can see, um, uh, where it kind of went pro, you know, suddenly it's a professional photographer. Uh, they're more concerned about featuring the product. Uh, there's, you know, the really embarrassing late seventies where stuff looks kind of disco. Uh, uh, I love those know, ones. Get, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the haircuts and some of the colors. So um, just as a, uh, and the Berkeley uh, in all, well, in all, all the sites, you know, Boulder, Berkeley, whatever, it really was a, uh, emerged out of a time where people were thinking about Back to the Land, the whole Stuart brand, the whole Earth Review. Uh, Jay Baldwin, who was a whole earther, was also a tent designer. Um, so it's uh, the inspiration of Buckminster Fuller, who was not the venerable gobble godfather at that point. He was like the weirdo designer. Uh, so that attracted some Bruce Hamilton at the North Face was a big Bucky Fuller fan, and that's how he ended up uh, affiliated with the North Face. And uh, so that interpenetration between all the thinking that was emerging at that period of time layered on top of that core throughout, you know, from World War II vets to Berkeley hippies uh, to, you know, the folks in the 90s to the ultralight uh, Cuban fiber folks now. Uh, there's that thread, but then there's the different waves of, of culture. And because it's sort of, sort of close to the ground, you know, a lot of the marketing is not marketing analysis. It's somebody that does the sport talking about what they do. It really reflects a lot of that uh, variance and continuity through the culture over the last, I don't know, what, 60 years? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really powerful. I, this whole theme, kind of this, this conversation has really been about story and, and telling stories. And, um, and there's been, you know, a few people, yourself included, who have been out there trying to tie it all together, right? And create a story. And I think that, I don't know, when you feel like you're a part of a story, I, I don't know, you get different outcomes, right? And I, I think right. for a lot of, you know, my thought process behind a lot of this collecting has been, you know, I want students in our product design program to feel a part of something bigger, right? And feel like right. they're part of something that has a heritage. And and I think your mindset changes. You treat it, dif you know, that differently. Maybe there's a responsibility that comes with that. But That's um, interesting. And, and to a degree, you know, if, and we've talked about this a few times on kind of this history series that we've been doing, but, you know, for some people, um, 
you know, especially founders in the outdoor industry, um, they don't necessarily think that what they're doing is significant, right? Um, but I think I've, I've found that if people, because a lot of them think, oh, this industry is new, right? It's, you know, we're just doing what we do. Um, but when we've put the outdoor industry kind of in a longer context, like, oh no, this outdoor industry is, has been around a lot longer than, you know, the sixties, you know, right. it, it was, it was before Jerry in, in the forties and fifties, um, you know, it was, it, it, you can trace it back to earlier than Abercrombie and Fitch in 1909, right? Like right. It, it goes back even further than that. And when you start to, to spread it out and see the outdoor industry as something that spans, you know, 150 years versus 50 right. years, right. I think your mindset changes, uh, changes a little bit when you see yourself in this larger, you know, the larger timeline of the industry. Yeah, the larger timeline. And I think the uh, current context or i don't think it's just new but um you know the thing that determines whether any natural environment does well is the relation of people to it if they view it as something to pave over or exploit or whatever it 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 decays so helping people have a high quality experience of wilderness or even you know the local park you know they're wearing the coat and bopping around town is, is that connection with the outdoors, I think is critical to our survival as species at this point, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need the wilderness and I think the wilderness needs us. And, and we're in an industry that can help facilitate that connection with the wild, you know, natural world. Uh, I think it's, you know, kind of a trust, you know, so I was, I was pretty cynical when I started. It's like, well, you know, the products we're making here aren't hurting anybody. So, it's probably okay. And over time I became more sort of a evangelist for the whole, the whole enterprise. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it takes, it takes people like you um, creating that story and tying things together and, and more and more I've realized, especially with, with some of the work of like a Bruce Johnson or, or in the case of dear Bob Woodward, you know, republishing some of his work. Um, if that, if that material isn't discoverable, it, it's right. almost as if it doesn't exist, right? And yeah. you, you have an appreciation for this, right? It being more in yeah. the tech space. If it's not searchable, if people can't find it, then right. that story can't be told and it can't continue. There's, it, it breaks, right? The, the link breaks. Um, right. Literally, right? In, right. in ways. Um, and so it, it kind of hits home that importance of telling these stories, putting them in a form where they're accessible, where people can appreciate them, you know, right. taking the work of like a Bruce Johnson and doing oral histories, you know, where we dive right. into each, each brand, right. you know, because people are listening to things, people are watching things, people aren't reading right. as much. Um, but maybe they'll watch one of these conversations and it'll spark something and then they'll go back and dive into the, right. the print materials or, or the website. Um, so, you know, it's just hit home to me more and more the importance of, you know, taking these stories and putting them in a form that, um, you know, people can, can access them. One that, you know, maybe you'll have some insights on that's been interesting is I've been going through the Summit Magazine catalogs that we have that we just recently acquired from, from uh, the Crenshaw family. Um, and uh, I, I flip through the ads in the back because they're just a perfect encapsulation of the brands that were around at that mm -hmm. time, or at least right. the ones that paid for an ad spot. Right. Right. And, um, some of the ones between 55 and 65, you know, most of them, there's a record of them online, like Holy Bar, Jerry. Right. Um, you know, you can, you can find information about these companies largely because of people like Bruce, right. Right. That, yeah. Who has put it online. Um, but right. there's a couple in there, Bud Davis packs. Mm-hmm. I search online right. and I can't find any information about them. And I talk to someone like Bruce, someone who's so plugged into the industry. And he says, I've never heard of them. I right. don't know where they came from. And you look, you type it in online, nothing comes up. Right? right. And that's really because, I mean, there's probably people who know something about that company, right. Right. but they never wrote it down online. Right. right. Yeah. So, I, you know, again, like that history just is erased if it's not converted into a, a form where people can use it. Yep. Which maybe you have some insights on that company. I can't find anyone who does. No, I'm, about I'm, it. I'm, yeah, I have nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they took out ad spots in, in Summit Magazine right next to Holy Bar and Jerry from 55 to 65. And they were in Washington, Seattle. That's, that's about all I know. 
So oh. it's kind of interesting. So maybe maybe a Bud Davis person will listen to this podcast and get in contact with you. That's yeah. See, that's the thing, right? It's like we've got to put it out there, and and like you said, people come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, and I think people are hungry for this kind of information, and they want to know, especially people in our industry. I feel like they want authenticity. They mm-hmm. want to know where something came from, like whether it's the material. They want to know how it's made. They want to know where it was sourced. Right. They want to know who who sewed it, how they were treated. Um, I think the same can be said of the history. It's like we want yeah. to know where this company came from, what values they espouse. Um, so I think people are hungry and are looking for this kind of information. So you've you've done such a huge service for I mean, for people to be able to go back and and uh you know hear these stories read these stories of of people in the industry but well thanks um what what's what's the next phase of of out and under and your work telling these stories uh well um you know i've sort of uh, been distracted lately uh politics has a lot to do with it um the I kind of want to do a reboot of the story project that is an outdoor industry. And I, you know, definitely want to, you know, I think everybody told me a story that um, I'm kind of holding trust. So I got to keep that moving forward. Um, if somebody wants to become my partner on this, boy, I've got a spot for you, you know, because the whole thing of, okay, let's line up three people. Uh, let's get them talking to each other. Let's get it out to get transcribed. Let's get on the uh, video editor and chop it up into pieces. It's, it's pretty labor intensive. It is, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, so I'm going to keep the flame burning, but I'm not necessarily feeding feeding it. Uh, I'm not trying to grow it. Uh, it's particularly fast at the moment, and that could change. You know, I didn't think a few, three years ago I'd be doing what I'm doing right now most of the time. So, right, yeah. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? It's not. I can promise you, it's not going to go away. Will it? Will right. it how, the rate at which it will grow, uh, anybody's guess. Well, I'm glad that it's still there. I refer to it. I mean, anytime, like I interview someone, I refer to the stories that are on there. I I go on there quite a bit just to to learn myself. I'm I'm relatively new. I mean, in the larger industry. Um, and I want to acquaint myself with, with this industry and to, you know, to be better informed and ask better questions when I am talking uh-huh. to people. But, um, so I, I use it all the time. So I'm glad it's going to still be there. Um, well, great. I'm, you, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about kind of, kind of some of the other things that you're working on? You mentioned that you're, I mean, you're still involved in the industry, uh, working right. with Slingfin. Do you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, some of the other, other projects, you know, other responsibilities that you have? Uh, well, you know, Slingfin is, well, Martin Zemitis, the tent designer, is my favorite guy from all the years, you know, because and, and, uh, I love tents. I love Martin, you know. It's, uh, so uh, working with them has is, is, is been fun. Uh, my job is I nag um, because there's only three of them. And if they nag each other, it would get a little toxic, but I can show up once a week. When, formerly, it's now Zoom, but we would go out to lunch and go through the list and I'd nag. Um, the weirdest thing I'm involved in is uh, offered to help a buddy on a website. And now I am being introduced as the CFO of a, a project that's attempting to build a solar farm training campus and EV charging station in Union Springs, Alabama. Wow. I've never been you know, I think I was in DC once. <laughs> this is not my part of the country. Speaking so, of speaking of not knowing what you're going to do in three years, right? I yeah, mean, didn't see that one coming. I did not see that one coming. Uh, but um, and I've been writing a lot, uh, which is kind of I retired to write a lot and discovered. Well, I really need to do some engineering uh, too because I, you know, uh, I thought I knew what would make me happy in any particular niche, but unless I'm building websites or writing code a little bit. Uh, so I do a little bit of that. Uh, I'm writing on medium, um, helping friends with websites, right? anything. Staying busy retirement. You, you don't stop even in retirement. off the leash. You're just off the leash. You don't sound retired. I'm never going to end up on the beach, you know, with a metal detector, uh, you know, looking for spare coins. It's just, <laughs> I, I think I was bored, uh, in high school in a couple of classes. I haven't, I haven't been bored since. So, you know, 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, how do how can people stay in touch with you? Uh, AltaBer.org. Okay. Is great. I try to keep a summary of what I'm doing there. Perfect. So that's the that's the best place, and then you can go to all your different uh, projects that you're working on. Yeah. Great. So if you're outdoor industry, the the thing I added to just flat storytelling, I transcribed them, but I would also uh, tag things. So the people, the organizations, some events, Uh, if you're interested in a particular company, the best thing to do is go there, find a story about that, that, click the link on the side that takes you to all the stories about that company. So um, it is, it does have some metadata if you're a IT guy. Designed to help, you know, a little bit of uh, tagging it to, to help people chase threads down. And I also put, and I should update it, but I put Bruce's entire site index in there as well. So inevitably, one of those tags off the site takes you to an index of Bruce's site, and you can foot into his more systematic exploration of, of the companies and the people. Right. Oh, that's great. Okay, perfect. And that's al, altabor.org? Yep. T-A-B-O-R. Okay, great. Perfect. Well, Al, thanks so much, you know, especially everything that you've done to help the archive. Um, just, you know, all your thoughts back and forth. I know you, I send you quite a few emails, especially recently. Um, but appreciate all your help and, and being willing to, to tell your story here today. Right. Well, you know, it was fun. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could, we could talk a lot more. I, you know, and I want to brainstorm some other topics with you sometime, but uh, I, I think just even talking about the history of the region um, would be really interesting. Right. Um, I mean, even, I, th- I think you mentioned this, right? The kind of the rise of the outdoor industry and tech kind of in right. that same region and the, right. you know, the parallels there. I, I think there's a lot, a lot more to talk about. So we'll have to right. do a part two and part three, maybe. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Well, thanks yep. as always, Al. Good to see good you. talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found. On HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.